I'm going to ask that you turn in your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 4. This is a message I've been trying to do for a number of weeks, but I want to get started on it today. In a lot of ways, Ephesians 4 is a summary of a lot of what we've talked about since Easter. Um, All the messages I've been able to share have been done out of a burden of my heart for church, and uh, Ephesians 4 captures much of it. And what I'd like to do is, is take today to talk about and explain some Ephesians 4, and then next Sunday, Lord willing, uh, to finish Ephesians 4. And then, of course, um, Brother Jerry White will be with us uh, on the 21st and be with us throughout that uh, week through Wednesday. And uh, for this reason, I want us to read Ephesians 4 and, and to really read verses 1 through 16, though we don't, um, I don't expect to cover all those verses today. But I think it's just, there's power in reading this and just knowing what the Word of God says. That, um, there, I was meeting with pastors a couple Sundays, a couple weeks ago for some of our state convention meetings. I've been uh, impressed with how many churches are hurting uh, for various reasons, certain economically, uh, as throughout the state. But the common refrain as I talk with pastors is the challenges and the hardships and the trials that are going on in different churches. And, and so it, it occurred to me that this is something that our state is feeling. And I know in our church we have our unique uh, struggles and issues and uh, things that have broken our heart in various ways. And, and Ephesians 4 is one I've looked to. And I've been amazed as I've read each verse how it just seems to be tying together the threads that we've been putting out as we've talked specifically about the Holy Spirit who He is, what He does, how He works in our church to be filled with the Spirit, to have the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And then as we looked in the last few weeks of love, and that love is a uh, the key for a church. It's what's produced out of a church, but done out of the Holy Spirit. And Ephesians 4, you've got them all together. The idea of what a church is like in love with one another and filled with the Spirit and how it functions. And so for that reason, I want to kind of give some a uh, couple of main truths that come from this chapter. And, and uh, as we read this, will we stand just in honor of this being God's Word, Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the works of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all may attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You may be seated. I'd like to read to you a story, if you will indulge me reading to you uh, this morning. It's a story that comes from an, an old pastor, Ralph Neighbors, uh, that I discovered this past week. But he seems to bring out a picture, a story of how the church can work. And I believe perhaps maybe how the church should work today. A visiting pastor in New Zealand was asked by a pastor of a church to come to a small group to help it understand its function. He came early for dinner and the husband was not there. The wife was embarrassed and explained that the husband owned a construction company and worked late. The group arrived after dinner and the visiting pastor taught for a while on how to use spiritual gifts to build each other up. Then he asked them to get alone for a few minutes to seek God for how each one might channel God's grace to the others for their upbuilding. When they came back together, he assumed they knew each other's needs because they had been been together for several years. The husband came home, showered, and joined them in a few minutes. When the opportunity was given to speak or to pray for each other, there was an awkward silence. They have never done like this, never done anything like this before, seeking the Lord for how he might want them to minister to each other in that moment to build each other up. The visiting pastor felt a fiasco was on his hands and turned the meeting back to the pastor to close. The pastor asked if anyone had a special problem they would like prayer for. The hostess said yes and showed the group the rash all over her arms. She said that the doctors had prescribed medicine, but it hadn't helped. They invited her to put her chair in the middle for prayer. And as they prayed, Christ, the head of the church, did his ministry. The pastor said, I sense in my heart the Lord is telling me your problem is a result of great anger. Remember that prophecy I was talking about, spiritual gift of prophecy? Uh, perhaps of special knowledge to reveal things that are in the heart. She was silent for a moment, then began to cry softly. Then she confessed, I am so un- angry at my husband. He promises to be home for dinner, but night after night we eat without him. He's broken his promises to me over and over, and I feel I'm a widow as I raise our children. There was an awareness that something had just been revealed that two years of small group meetings had not revealed. And the husband was blushing with embarrassment. To make the story shorter, several men began to pray or began to speak about how they had wrestled with the same problem in their homes and almost ruined their marriages. One in particular spoke of a deep meeting with God in such a crisis and how God had made everything new. By the grace of God, the husband knelt down in front of his wife and wept into her lap as the group prayed for them more earnestly than they had ever prayed. The visiting pastor commented later, The Lord had invaded his body, and the gateway into the supernatural world had been crossed by us all. The following Sunday, the visiting pastor was to preach and saw the small group gathered on the parking lot outside the church. When they found him inside, the woman pulled up her sleeve and said, Look, no rash anywhere. The husband approached and said, I've cut back my work day to eight hours. I took the kids to the zoo yesterday. 
we have a new home. I read that story and I ask, is that an unusual story? Is that foreign to church as we understand it and as we know it? Too many times we think church is just, I'm going to show up on Sunday morning and I'm going to listen, we're going to sing, and maybe I'll be inspired, maybe I'll be encouraged, maybe I may be convicted. And then I'm going to go on, and I'll go to church again next Sunday, or perhaps Wednesday, uh, if it works out right. I read that, I hear that, I understand that, I feel it, and I read this passage in Ephesians 4, I read this story, and I think, you know, I don't believe Paul had this thinking of church in his mind, that it's just a once a week, we gather to listen to one person. As we've shared before in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, the spiritual gifts are given so that we will build each other up. What is implied is that there's a lifestyle of church as you go through the week. Not just on Sunday, but relationships with one another. I think sometimes the church can be such a place where you put up an image that if the pastor asks an awkward question revealing something about ourselves, we would never Never think about publicly acknowledging it in front of those group of folks. No. If I share it with those group of folks, it'll be shared with the entire community. And instead of being built up, I'll be cut down. Have you ever felt that? I'm afraid that thinking is probably more familiar. More common. And so as I read the Word of God, I just see this great gap that exists between what the Bible says and church in America as we know it. And I'm not picking on our church. I'm thinking church in America as we know it tends to go down this direction where there's just entertainment or education, but there's certainly not, well, revealing of ourselves, transparency, and a building of one another. And so it's this gap that my heart breaks over And I pray together as a church that you can see the burden, that you can see the difference between the Scripture and church as we see it. And I pray that church as we know it here can be more like what Scripture says and less like maybe what a church down the road might be. So it's with that thought, I just want to bring to our attention a couple of truths from this passage First of all, I just want you to read, as we read verses 1 and 2 and 3, verse 4, it brings out this idea of church unity. And I want you to understand that, first of all, church unity flows from the one call of the one spirit. Church unity flows from the one call of the one spirit. And notice how he brings out in Ephesians 4, he, he brings out one. He says, first of all, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. All right? Worthy of the calling. First of all, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, you remember that verse in, in, in this book is the one that talks about that you're saved by grace. It's not of works. So I want you to understand that walking worthy of your calling is not something by which God will grant you salvation. That's not what he's talking about. He said, first of all, you've been saved by the grace of God. Now, because of the calling of God, demonstrate the greatness of the call. I was just reflecting on of a, a, a man who I was acquainted with, a political uh, influence. And in, I think it was 2000, 
uh, 9, somewhere around there. This was a man that was involved in a county commissioner. He was 74, involved in political action in various ways, ran for the governor at one time in our state, uh, and was a Christian man and, and, and uh, made sure that the political voice that he was bringing was that of social uh, values that reflect Christianity. And then it was revealed in a scandal that he was not acting very much like a Christian in private. And he had to step down from being the county commissioner of that county he was in. Why did he step down? Well, he stepped down because of the calling that he was in. The, the, the job of county commissioner, he was not walking up to the standard of what was expected in being morally upright as a county commissioner, especially in how he presented himself. And so it was with this conviction that he realized he needed to step down. Listen. The calling that we've been brought to is so much greater than a county commissioner. So much greater than a political office. What is some of the calling? If you were to read in Ephesians, uh, Paul is bringing this to our attention. Ephesians 1.4, it tells us that God chose us for himself before the world was created. We've been called before the world was made. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. In Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us to be his children. And that means that we're heirs of the Father. We are, uh, we are of divine inheritance. We have the name of God upon us. In verse 7, chapter 1, He sent Christ to atone for our sins, to make us right by His sacrifice. That's the type of calling He's given to us. Ephesians 1.13, He sealed us with the Holy Spirit to preserve us forever. That's the, He's got the Spirit of God, the, the Spirit of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are, is with us now, sealed by Him forever. In chapter 2, verse 7, he promises to spend an eternity increasing our joy in the measurable riches of his grace. And then Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 talks about the calling that we're saved by grace, but we're saved to be his workmanship, to be his craft, and that we're to walk in good works that God has set apart for us to walk in even before we were born. Ephesians 3, 10, he's given us the mission as a church to display God's wisdom. Isn't that something? How do you see the wisdom of God? Through the church body. Isn't that, that, that's kind of sobering for me. To understand that it's our church that displays that. That we are destined and appointed to live for the praise of his glory. What makes a church unified? The fact that every single one of us have been called by God. We've been called out. We've been set apart it's, it's kind of the, the story of, of, of a dog. I was uh, walking uh, on some country roads this past week. I do a little two-mile exercise just walking out. And, and it was amazing because I didn't see anybody around me. Uh, you, you know how that's kind of rare in our area. But I was just, no one around. It was just farms and two dogs. <laughs> and then the two dogs brought the owner. Because the two dogs, when they see someone walking, they want to walk with the, the walker. And, and I thought, well, this should be interesting. Will they know the voice of their master? Will they recognize the name? And, and so I could hear the man calling out their names. And they were very reluctant. They were only about nine months. Um, but after a while, they listen. And they go back. And it didn't matter what I said or what I whistled. Eventually, and I didn't whistle, but eventually they went back to the owner. It's the idea that we've been called out, that we walk in this world, but there's one who is continually calling out our name. 
and that we are to listen and to hear to. And we have a choice. We can walk with people around us or we can listen to the call of God. And the fact is that the church is a group of people who live in this world, but they hear the call of God in their heart. Not just someday when they were saved, but every day they hear God's call for them to walk with God. Do you hear the call of God in your life? Do you sense the Spirit convicting in your life to say, you know what, I've got a choice this day. I can live like everyone else or I can hear the call of God in my heart. Are we going to be like the errant dogs that just are lapping at every person that walks by? Or will we have a heart for the one who's calling us? That's part of what makes us a church is that we're unified flows. Unity flows from one call of the one spirit. Notice how he says we are one. It says maintain unity. In other words, it's already there. See in verse three, eager to maintain the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. It's already there. The difference is, will we listen to the spirit? Okay. Verse 13 talks about be eager to maintain or eager to attain the unity. Whereas verse 3 says main, it's already there. And so, yes, it's already there. But then it's something we work out in our life. And we work it out by being sensitive to the Spirit of God in our life. And so it flows from the one call of this one Spirit. But notice verse 2, how we are to listen to this call, how we're to walk is to live within this calling. It's done in verse 2 and verse 3 with love. Your church entity flows from the one call of the one spirit with love. With love. Verse 2 brings out very specific applications, how we love. With all humility and gentleness. Humility and gentleness. This is the humility is understand where you are before God. To think much more of Christ and more realistic of yourself. Alright? It's not so much of, man, I want to make sure I'm humble. How can I be humble? What's the humble way to react here? That's not the idea. Humility is just forgetting about yourself. You ever talked about someone's, uh, I've had a, a roommate that would joke with me that one of his greatest strengths was his humility. You know, and that's just not what we're talking about here. It's just the idea of you don't even think about yourself because your mind's absorbed with someone else. All right. The church is a collection of people who have their mind absorbed with who Christ is, the greatness of Christ, and to think realistically of themselves, to know, hey, you know, I'm saved by the grace of God. It's not by my works that it matters. It is it's God's working in my life. And so consequently, when when compliments come, when compliments come, it's done soberly. I um this past week the pastor shared with me, he said, you know, you, you've just anointed in your preaching, you are gifted in teaching and preaching. And I just here's how I was thinking about that. Thank you. That's God's working, his his gift that he's given to me. But understand, this gift that he's given to me, it's also filled with all kinds of weaknesses. In my life. I said, and I know how God's gifted me, but I also know how I'm weak. And I think God is, is the grace of God. Now, listen, is that pride to acknowledge when God has gifted you? Is that a lack of humility to know how God has gifted you? Have you, have you heard someone say, well, you know, 
you did a great job. And you said, well, it wasn't me. It was all God. First of all, no one preaches that good. All right. No one preaches that good. All right. So when you do things and you see God's work in your life, don't say, well, it was, it was all God because it wasn't that good. All right. But I understand it is a gift of God. And there's nothing prideful in acknowledging God has gifted this. He, he has gifted me in this way. But you do so understanding that it is in relationship to God. And you also know that where God has given you strengths, you provide the weaknesses. And you are acutely aware of that as well. And it's when we forget about our weaknesses, and here's why we forget about our weaknesses, we start looking at other people. Man, you know what? I'm glad I'm stronger than them. I'm glad I've got more abilities than they. The problem is, is that we are looking at them as opposed to having the greatness of Christ overwhelm our heart and mind and that we're thinking about Him. And that's the difference because as we see the greatness of Christ, we see in a new way, in a healing way, our own weaknesses. And we go to God for mercy and a confession of our sins and He is merciful. I praise God for that. And so with humility and gentleness, gentleness, gentleness is the out working of humility in our life. How do you express humility? It is by being gentle with others. Or the word might be meek. We've talked about this before as we, as we read in 1 Corinthians 13 how love is to work and that is to be done with a meekness. To understand that we are under the authority of God. Do you know that as a church? We are under the authority of God. And that how we act is to reflect being under authority of Christ. And that we're not to step out of bounds in how we treat one another. So love comes out with the one call of the spirit of love. And it's expressed with humility and gentleness. But you keep on reading verse 2. There's another way of expressing this love. And that's with patience. Bearing one another in love. You remember 1 Corinthians 13. We talked about all the, the qualities of love. It's interesting that Paul, in talking to this church in Ephesus, just brings out a few. Humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another, a long-suffering. Isn't that interesting? These, these are the ones he focuses on. In a church, these matter. <laughs> these matter. As I read about this, here's what I struggle with. Am I, as a church, are we really just united by the fact that we've been one called by one spirit with love, is that really what unites it? Because the church will be tested on that. I was talking with the church this past past week, and I said, you know, if you're really united by the spirit of God and one call, then it won't really matter when different races come in, will it? Because that's not what unites you, when different races come in. It won't really matter... When different socioeconomic groups come in. Because that's not what unites you. It won't really matter when you see people that differ with methods and how they do ministry. Because that's not what unites you. And it won't really matter when people worship with styles that are different from other people. Because that's not what unites you. And and that's why I struggle with that, because I don't know if that's true of our church. And sometimes that's only revealed when it's challenged. And so this is something that's in my own heart to say, God, help me to see 
and put more importance on you and your spirit and your call and help me to see rightly my own personal convictions that may not be uh, critical to salvation are critical to the unity of this church. And that's a hard thing to ask. But that's something I want to challenge us to think through. Church unity flows from the one call of one spirit with love. And so in verse 3, now there's eagerness to maintain the unity of the spirit. There's a desire. I want to see the church unified. I want us to, I don't care what it costs as long as it doesn't cost the call of the spirit of God. The convictions of, of one Lord, one faith, that we have the same king, same baptism, one God and father of all. That salvation is maintained. The truth of God stands sure. But to understand that everything else is fair game for the unity of a church. And then, as we keep on reading, one God, one Father, all, who is over all and through all and in all, but grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. That's worth emphasizing in your Bible. Highlight, write it down. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. This echoes 1 Corinthians 12 in that the Bible says the Spirit of God has been, has been giving gifts to each of us. The grace that he's talking about is the Spirit of God giving gifts to each of us according to the measure of the Spirit, Christ's gift. All right? If something happens when you join a church, it's amazing to me. I mean, it just looks like someone's just making a public commitment. But there's something in that public commitment of acknowledging God's leading into a church body that God recognizes. And it's, it's, I believe it's mystical. It's something I can't figure out through, through reason. But there is a unity in a local church. And you think, well, Pastor, how can that be? I'm just, I'm just going before the church and, and I'm just making a statement, a, co- a commitment. How can it be? You know, I was at a wedding yesterday and it happened the same way. I often thought, it's crazy how just in a ceremony with one man, one woman, and making a public commitment. How is it that we become one? Listen, God hears our heart. He hears our words. And we, when we publicly make a statement that we sense God leading us to this man and to this woman, God says, you are one. It's mystical. It's spiritual. But it's something that God recognizes and it happens through a public Statement, I think that when you join a church and you acknowledge Jesus as your Savior and Lord, that same thing happens. And so God gives you the gifts to help that body. And the question is, well, what on earth can a church do? What on earth can a church do that acquires everybody to use our gift? And let me just tell you, I don't think it's a program. I don't think it's a program that a church does that requires all of the church body to use our gifts. You know, we, we, we operate by programs. You've got children's programs, youth programs, seniors programs. You got, we've got a program for just about anything. And I just don't know how many programs were going on in the New Testament era. There's an organization being done in care for the widows. But there seems to be a, a meeting together that people were doing and sharing the word of God with one another and sharing their life with one another and, and sharing the resources with them together that the Spirit of God gives gifts to build each other up. To build each other up. And so I, I want to challenge this. Part of the invitation today is this. What needs in our church body am I praying for? Are you praying for a need in someone's life? 
And I'm not just talking church general. We've got plenty of needs church generally. But a need of someone else in the church body. Do you even know the need of someone else in our church body? If you don't know the need of someone else in the church body, then it shows a great divorce of what Scripture is teaching and what we're practicing. But make that a challenge, a prayer. How can I meet and minister the needs of someone in our church body and see how God will use your gifts and abilities, whatever you're good at, to build them up? Now, as we keep it, I want to skip down to verse 15 and 16. We talked about church unity. Now I want to talk about church growth. Because I think Ephesians 4 talks about church growth. This verse 15 and 16. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped, when every part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We talk about church unity flowing from one call, of one spirit with love. Church growth flows from a whole church. Church growth flows from a whole church. Okay? Notice what he says. First of all, in verse 15, the goal is Christ. The goal of Jenna is that she will grow up into Christ. The goal of John is to grow up into Christ. The goal, of us, the goal of all of us together is to grow into Christ. And then notice verse 16. From whom the whole body, and skip down to the end, makes the body grow. Christ, from whom the whole body is joined together, when each part is working together, the whole body makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. How does a church grow? A church grows when the whole body is working and building each other up in love. I don't see that in church growth books. And there's a bunch of church growth books. But when I read the text here, it says the whole church is involved in this whole process. By the calling the Spirit of God, being submissive to the Spirit of loving one another, bearing with one another, uh, bearing with each other's differences and preferences, and, and when they're grumpy, irritable, opinionated... And say, okay, I'm going to bear with this person in love. And as I do that, I'm, I'm growing. Because I can't depend on my own resources anymore, can I? When someone's grumpy, irritable, and cranky, opinionated. I say, God, help me love this person. Because I'm having problems on my own. And as I do that, I'm growing in love. But as we all do it, what does it say? Makes the body grow. Now, there's something to be said about pastors and leaders and teachers that God gives the church to teach the word of God, to do it in a way that you get and understand. And that's the knowledge in Ephesians 4. But understand that when a church grows, when it grows rightly, it's done when the whole church is building one another up. All right. We could we could do pizza. We could do movies. We could have a, a concert every Sunday uh, we could have the lights, we could have the electric guitars, we could, we could do these things that would and does attract people. Do you understand that? It does attract people. But it's not done in the Bible that way as far as when a church grows. So just between growing a crowd and growing a church. 
Growing a church will grow numerically. But it happens. The greatest draw in this community is not going to be what we do on October 31st. But what October 31st can do is, as we're reaching out to the community is it gets people rubbing shoulders with their own church body. And when people rub shoulders with the church body, they see the love of one another. That's the draw. That is the greatest thing that can point people to faith. The greatest apologist for a church is people who love one another. You ever met someone who says, I used to go to church? And what's the biggest reason why they used to go to church? Is it not because of some injury done in church by some person? And they said that was not loving. Could it be that the very reason we don't have many people come to church is because they've been de-churched by the lack of love of people? Could that be? And if that's true... The greatest antidote to that, the greatest apologist for the church is people who simply love one another. Who use their gifts and abilities to minister to one another. And the people in the community sees that. When our weekday preschool, the weekday preschool is not what's going to grow this church. But when the people in the weekday preschool can rub shoulders with people who are of our body. And see love of one another. That is a draw to Christ. That's when that happens. And so all the events that we might have, the event itself doesn't work. It's Christ working through the people who are loving through the event. And so if there is an attack on love, then it doesn't matter how many events and organization we have. If we have the attack on love. The whole body. Now, I want you to get this, though. The church growth flows from a whole church. Now, here's the rest of that sentence. I just gave you a part. The church growth flows from a whole church growing in hunger of Christ. All right? A church growth grows when the whole church grows in hunger in Christ. I want you to catch something at the end of verse 15 and beginning of 16. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint which is by which it is equipped, when every part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. From whom? Who is he talking about that the church grows from? What does 15 say at the very end? From Christ. We are working into Christ from whom the whole body makes the body grow. When Christ is the hunger of our heart individually and corporately together, then the church grows with one another. But the key, and one of the things I talked about last week, or two weeks ago when I was working in the book of James, is to say that joy, trials turn to joy only when Jesus is our greatest delight. And as a church, when Jesus is our greatest delight, things are different and that we grow up together in love. Now, Two weeks ago, with this statement, I, I, I talked about the need for prayer. And we handed out some uh, brochures of the Awakened Prayer um, uh, calendars. I think they were all taken. If you would like to be part of that, you can still contact 
Uh, our church office, or if you have that back of that brochure, you can, of course, if you have the back of the brochure, you don't need this. But if you'd like to get this, you can call the church office, and we can make sure it's brought to you by email. The idea is that we seek Christ. I would like to introduce to our church body a collective church-wide fast. October 20th is the Saturday before Jerry White will be here. I've seen in my life as I've experienced some fasting and it makes sensitive to me ways I take from Christ and go to other things for my delight. It brings that to my mind. And if the Bible says that we grow from Christ, then we must hunger for Christ. And it's not to fast in that maybe God will hear our prayer. That's wrong. That is totally against the gospel to think that we're going to fast so that God can hear. You know why God hears our prayer? (laughs) Because of Jesus and Jesus alone. That's why he hears our prayer. The fasting is something that we do in our life after Christ has come to reveal that Christ is our greatest treasure. And that we want to have a sensitivity to Christ being our greatest treasure. You know what I found is, is, as I've done this and tried this, I, I see little things that start taking my heart away. Do you know that every commercial I watch is an attempt by this world to take my heart from Christ? Every commercial... Every ad, that's the point of the ad, is to make you think that you have some satisfaction in the product. That's the goal. They have a successful ad when that is the end result. The problem with that is it's adding to Christ. I am saturated in this society with constant attempts to take my heart and my mind away from Christ. And to say, yeah, you can be a Christian, you can go to church, you can have Christ as your Savior, but you don't really have to hunger for Him more than anything else. I mean, that's just for fanatics. Well, I think it's just for folks that love Christ. The fact of the matter is, Christ has done this for me. He has laid down His life. He has humbled Himself. He has bared with my evil. He's endured me and gave me forgiveness and mercy in the gospel. He did it to complete the will of the Father. He himself fasted, being the Son of God. How much more shall we fast? Now, when you fast, let me give you some practical things. Yes, collectively, I've kind of announced it. It's out there. There's no secret anymore among this church body. But it's okay. I know some of you are going to bring up the passage of of when you fast to make sure that it's not done in public. The point of it is the motive. The motive of why you fast is that you want to hunger and thirst for God more than anything else. And that you don't make a big deal about it as you go through your day. You don't make a, you don't say, fix, no, I don't want the fries, I'm fasting. And that's not a statement you're going to make, all right? You're not going to bring that out in public. Um, It's just something that the time you would normally spend eating, you take that time and you spend it seeking the Lord in prayer, 
and the reading of his word. So part of it is a very pragmatic time issue. But also with the hunger pangs that will come will be a reminder of how much God means to us. How much does Jesus mean to us? And that it actually becomes a delight. I know this sounds crazy for us in America to think going without food sounds like a delight. But it can be a delight when we compare it with the greatness of who Jesus is. Now, if you have health issues, you're diabetic, things like that, I'm going to ask that you some common sense. All right? Uh, don't just say because the pastor said this. No, yeah, use some common sense. This is not a healthy thing for you. And I said because the doctor said it's not healthy. Just, a lot of us may use that excuse. Um, but I would encourage you to eat healthy before the fast and after the fast um, to set your, your body right. Watch out for what you might be tempted to go to for consolation, like napping, watching TV going on the internet, things like that, that may try to take your mind off the hunger pains. The hunger pains are there for a reason. It's to bring us back and reminders to our God and say He is the great Lord. He is the great Savior, Jesus Christ. My prayer is as a church, we'll hunger for Christ. If growth comes from Christ, if love comes, comes from Christ, if unity comes from the Spirit of Christ, then Christ must be the all of our church. And that's not just because I said it from a pulpit. Christ is all in our church when we individually make Christ all in our life. And we bring our worship together with God. Do you get that? I want you to note something, verse 16. Into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What kind of working part are you? Are you working properly? Are you under the authority of Christ? Are you hungering after Christ? Do you know the love of Christ? And are you demonstrating love specifically through humility and meekness and forbearing one another? We, um, a year and a half ago, I think it was about a year and a half ago, we went from two services to one service. And here's one of the reasons why. I thought, you know, one, we want folks to see how God's working among each other. And two, we want to see, and hopefully it'll build a sense of unity in our church. <laughs> the problem is that one service isn't given by Scripture by which we have unity. We could have one service, but if we don't have one spirit, one Christ, one love, it doesn't work. And so that was part of the desire. And sometimes it's learning by mistakes to say, you know what, I thought that would help, and I should have read the scripture. It's not done by having one service. It's done by having one spirit. I invite you, 
to take Ephesians 4 and walk worthy of the calling, that we all walk worthy of the calling by which God called us, by hungering after Christ, realizing that church growth comes from the whole body, whole body hungering after Christ. Church unity comes from one call of one spirit with love. And let me ask you, I want to invite you to simply pray this morning and ask God, ask God, can I minister to someone in their need? Help me to see the need of someone in our body and let me use my gifts and abilities and what I'm good at in ministering to that person. So when I bring that, it's going to come with some sacrifice. When you intentionally sacrifice for the good of someone else without demanding that they are deserving or that they will reciprocate it. Will you do that for the sake of Christ, for the sake of this body? Pray for that. And then look for how you can minister to them. Find a tangible way of doing that. The end goal of this is not just prayer, but a prayer that leads to action. So to do that, I'm going to, I'm going to invite us first to just to all bow our heads in prayer. And provide a little bit of silent time for us to think about this.